now in Easter, we're going to be uh, camping out in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so I hope you bring your Bibles and, and uh, notepad and so forth, because uh, we're not going to do um, a, a, full, a full study of Matthew, because with 28 chapters and the length of his story, it, it, I, you just can't do it in 12 weeks. It's just not possible. Um, and so what I want to do is to help you get a handle on Matthew so enrich your own study uh, so that you will see kind of what he's trying to do and how he's, how he's presenting his message. And then we're going to look at vignettes. We're going to dig deep into certain, certain stories and certain parables and so forth so that we will get it within that context. And so I, I want to set the stage for that because... I want us to kind of understand uh, Matthew. The very first verse is the title for the book. Now, we, we don't see that. We, we have a title page, you know, and we have you know, all kinds of stuff, copyrights and all that kind of stuff in the front of the book, and who's it dedicated to and all that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all tell you in the first verse what the thing's about. It's kind of their title. And in Luke's title, it's in this translation it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We've heard those words many times, and I, I, I want you to back up for a minute and try to hear them with first century uh, ears. Uh, Matthew is writing into a congregation of people who are Jewish by heritage and background, their Hebrew faith, they're rich and deep in the Old Testament. Uh, Matthew is known to be the most Hebrew of all the Gospels. They're all Hebrew. Uh, they're all Hebrew literature, but Matthew is very Hebrew. If that if that makes any sense, and what I mean by that is Matthew is engaging with the the rabbis. Uh, rabbis are a certain strain of Hebrew faith out in the first century. They're not the dominant faith until about six or 700 AD. About 700 years after Jesus, they become the dominant faith and produce a lot of literature and so forth. But in the first century, they're a small group and they're beginning to try to dominate some of the synagogues. And some of those synagogues have believers in them and, and followers of Jesus. And that creates tension. And so he starts off and says, this is the genealogy of Jesus. That's not how they would have heard it. He doesn't use the word genealogy like we would use it. He uses the word genesis. This is the genesis of Yeshua, Mashiach. Yeshua, Jesus, or Yehoshua, Joshua. He's named for being the Savior. That's what Jesus means. That's what Yeshua means. Savior, deliverer. He's like Joshua. Joshua means the same. Same, same, same name. And he actually tells you up front, he's the Messiah right off the bat. Wow. So you know he's staked his faith and he's put it out there in front of all the people who are going to read this book. Son of David, son of Abraham. This is the origin. This is the beginning of Messiah. 
And so he gives you his roots, tells you exactly where he comes from, traces him back to Abraham. Why Abraham? Because that's where the faith of the Jews and the Hebrews begins. It's with Abraham. It's what God does in the life of Abraham to start something new on the earth in order to save the earth and bring it back together and establish relationship with people again. So because they've wandered so far away from him, it's, they've been doing evil only in the sight of the Lord in the early books, early phrases of Genesis. And so as you look at that, why in the world would they do a, a gospel? Well, if you drop down to verse 18, he says it again. This is how the birth of Yeshua, the Messiah, came about. That word birth is again the word Genesis, which in Greek means the beginning. This is the beginning of Jesus, Yeshua. Why do they go back to him? Why don't they just jump into some philosophy and some ethics and so on and so forth? The early church never did that. What they do is they go back and they look at what he said and what he did, and then they begin to put that into a, a structure, a book, a, a, a gospel. A, Paul does it in letters. They take what he did and what he said, and, and, and they, they remind each other of it. And so what you have is a community of people who are following Jesus looking back at him, remembering what he said, remembering what he did, and writing it down for a new generation that's struggling with some issues. How do you deal with these guys who've come along and claim all authority? And how do you deal with people who are saying, you've got the wrong spin on the Old Testament. You don't understand it at all. You need to listen to us. We've got, we've got what it takes. We're, we're the guys. We're the experts. We're the sages. So what do you do when you're a little group and you're, you don't have sages and you don't have a lot of educated people? What do they do? They go back and look at Jesus. And when they go back, they, they look at collections of his words and they look at collections of the stories that, that, that are circulating in the congregations the stories that the apostles told them when they came through and started that church, that's what they're hanging on to. And that's what Matthew's doing. He's bringing those things together and putting them down into writing so that we have them today even. But don't we do that ourselves? How many of you read biographies? How many of you read it all? You can get them on your cell phone now. You know that. No, I'm just teasing. Why do you read a biography? I, I remember reading the biography of Truman that McCullum wrote. Wonderful book. About that thick. I, I listened to it. I didn't flip the pages. But, but as, I, as I went through that and, and heard the reader and, and let the words pour over me, I, what he told me is event after event, story after story, and he would even say, this is what made Harry Truman tick. This is what he said. This is what he, what he stood for. When he did this, he did this, and so on and so forth. Why do you do that? Why do you read any biography? To find out 
if this important person that you want to know about more actually is consistent between what he says and what he does. Isn't it? That's the story. That's why biographies are written. That's why they're written in the first century. That's what the Gospels are. And, and so they go back and look. Why? Well, it's because of this. Credible trust rests on the congruence between words and works. Big words. People trust you because what you say is what you do. What you do is what you say. It's who you are. Dennis did a wonderful job this morning in the Hebrews class getting us into that, that word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Why? Why is it sharper? Why is it that Jesus has lasted 2,000 years and his tribe is growing? 2,000 years. Any other philosophy around that long that people are actually still following? A few. Not very many. And not in any terms the ones the size of the group that follows Jesus. Why is that? Because there's congruence between what he said and what he did. And when Matthew wants you to know Jesus, what does he do? He goes back and collects the stories of what he did and what he said, and he organizes them into a gospel. And the themes that are surrounding that are speaking into the hearts of an early group of Christians who need that support, who need to understand Jesus in order to survive in their world. So keep that in mind because that's behind every gospel. It's the nature of the reality of who we are. And so when they begin to conflict with the sages in the synagogue and they begin to be forced out of the synagogues, is actually what happened at the end of the first century. And as they begin to be forced out and the rabbis begin to take control of the synagogues, who is it that they turn to? How do they hold on? They hold on in groups of themselves, surrounded around gospels that are reminding them of who Jesus is by telling them what he did and what he said. So you could hang on to that. Well, is that something we can hang on to? It is, isn't it? He hasn't changed. It's, in fact, it's our only insight into who he is. If we just read Paul's letters, we'd never know who Jesus is. I mean, Paul's letters are important. I understand that. But he works off the assumption that you already know who Jesus is before he starts talking. Right? And so as you begin to, to, to open the book of Matthew and you begin to look at the genesis of of Yeshua. What's he saying? Well, I want you to see how Matthew's put together. The Genesis of the Messiah, the first two chapters, first two chapters, the birth narrative. He starts off and he tells you this is the beginning. So you have two chapters in the front that are bookended by three, two, or three chapters in the back. 26, 27, and 28. And what do they tell you? They, they tell you the same story because the first chapter comes in and tells you he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. The last chapter, the last verse says, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. 
That's not an accident. He's got the bookends. Everything in the middle is going to tell you how he is with us. That's what Matthew wants you to see. Here is how Jesus is with us. And, by inference, how we can be with him. Right? And so as you look at it, that's what he's telling you. Messiah. Messiah is king. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'm the king. Last closing verses of Matthew. Bookends. And then the other thing that jumps out to me was I began to study Matthew again, and I'd never really seen this before, is early on you have the Magi come, and they ask Herod this question that gets some infants killed. Uh, Herod, where is the son of God? the king of the Jews, where is the king of the Jews born? Herod says, wait a minute, you're talking to the king of Jews. I'm the only one tolerating that around here, right? You're talking to him. So what does he do? King of the Jews. Do you realize that the only place that that term comes back is chapter 27 at the end of the book? It's not in the middle at all. And it's three times in the last chapter. When Pilate faces Jesus, he says, so you are the king of the Jews, or are you the king of the Jews? Question mark. The soldiers say, hail, king of the Jews, and mock Jesus. And what's the sign on the cross? This is king of the Jews, right? You think that's accidental? That Matthew puts that at the end and puts it at the beginning? What's at stake in the middle? How is Jesus the real Messiah? How is he the real King of the Jews? That's the story between the bookends. You'll see it, well, we can go on a little bit further. I I just want you to see that, that he's got a structure. And I want you to see that it's in the middle of the book as well. There's a key phrase in Matthew. So if you've got your Bible, turn to chapter 7, verse 28. And when you begin to to read chapter 7, verse 28, it says, And when Jesus finished saying... Now turn to chapter 11, verse 1. And when Jesus finished saying, he does that five times. Does that give you a clue of something important? If he uses the exact same words, in fact, all six times, all five times, it's the same exact sentence in Greek. It's just ditto. There's not even any change in word order, except for the last one when it says, when he finished saying all these things, that's chapter 26, verse 1. So he's telling you, I've wrapped up all that he's said and done, and now he turns to the last chapter, the passion, the confrontation in Jerusalem, the resurrection. That's the last three verses, the last three chapters. When he's finished saying five times, huh, 
Five times. Where do we run into five books? Doesn't the Old Testament kind of start off with five books? In fact, we even call it the Pentateuch, don't we? Now, he's not copying from the Pentateuch, and he's not even drawing the themes from Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so forth. He's not drawing the themes from there. But it's not accidental that he has five. Because he wants you to see something. And I'm going to show you that in just a minute. But as, as, you, as you look at it, all five of those books have the same structure. That's where they start, or that's where they end. Here's the structure. Leading up to the five, leading up to the discourse on the Sermon on the Mount, you have two chapters that talk about what he did, actions, just random sometimes. He did this, he, he said these words, but they're, they're short snippets, okay, little narratives that have some teaching tied, tied to them every once in a while. And then you have three chapters of one discourse on the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you look at the next one, he does the same thing. In verses 8 and 9, chapters 8 and 9, he has narratives, little narratives here and there, little narratives. And then in chapter 10, he gives you the call of the apostles and what he told them to do and how they go about doing their job and so forth. And you have this discourse to them on what it means to be a disciple. And then in 11 and 12, you got the same thing. Little snidbit, little tidbits, little narratives. And then you've got a whole chapter on parables all at the same place. Everybody's sitting down and he tells parables and explains parables. And then the same thing happens again in 14 through 17. And 18 is all one speech. Same thing for 19 to 22. And then 23 through 25 is all one speech. Okay? Do you see the pattern? Why is that pattern? Why is it important for you to see that pattern? I want, you to, I want you to understand how deep Matthew is into what he did and what he said. Because the whole power of Matthew and the gospel and all the gospels is the connections and the congruence between what he said and what he does. That's why we trust him. That's why we trust anybody. Isn't it true? If, there's, if there is not a, a, a connection, if there's no sameness, if there's no congruence between what someone says and what they do, do you trust them? I think we're having uh, an, an issue that, with that in our national dialogue right now, aren't we? I've never heard the word hypocrite used more than, I mean, maybe Jesus uses it more often. But he had better targets. Well, no, maybe he didn't. Maybe he had the same target. Because, you see, we don't trust people who say one thing and do something else. Ever. In fact, if we read it on their faces, we don't even trust them to begin with. Because we always believe the behavior before the words. Don't we? Anybody that believes the words before the behavior? I got a house I want to sell. Right? I got a bridge in Brooklyn. Right? We never believe the words over the behavior, ever. 
Why does John or Matthew go about doing it the way he does it? For that very reason. He wants you to understand that the words and the meaning and the power of the words of Jesus come because of who he is and what he does and how he goes about his life and the consistency. He comes preaching peace and love for your enemy, but at the end he doesn't gather an army to kill his enemies. He goes to a cross. True? He lives consistently with what he speaks. And so Matthew's going to draw that home. He's going to, he's going to let us see it. He's going to open the door. Um, because he wants us to read the gospel and follow. And he, he, he pulls it together right at the end of chapter 25 and 26. I want you to see it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will pull the sheep on his, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. When the Son of Man, the Son of Man, now wait a minute, we haven't run into that one yet, have we? We've got Messiah, Son of David, Son of God, Son of Abraham, Son of man? What does that mean? Daniel 7. The prophecy is that the Son of Man will come. And he quotes that to the high priest in chapter 26. He says, the high priest says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, the Jewish court at the time, the Hebrew court at the time, was not like ours. You don't have any defense. Well, there is a defense attorney. One of the Sanhedrin had, had to believe that you were innocent and defend you, or it wasn't a, a valid trial. But on the, uh, on the other hand, the high priest could put you on your honor, on your oath. And it wasn't, you know, you didn't get to, you didn't get to pass. You, you couldn't say, there's no Fifth Amendment right in a Jewish court. <laughs> if the high priest says, I put you on the oath, the next words out of your mouth have to be the truth. That's just how they ran their show, okay? And so he says, I charge you under oath. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus says, you have said so. In Mark, it says, yes, I am, okay? Why does he say that? Because Matthew wants you to see what's coming next. Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. What's he quoting? Daniel chapter 7. I am the one that is coming in the, in, in the clouds, and I will sit on the throne of the Ancient of Days, just like Daniel says. Did he speak the truth? Yeah. How do I know? Because they killed him for it. They killed him for it. That's why, right there. Son of man. I'm the son of man. He's making a claim bigger than they thought Messiah was. He's making a claim bigger than son of God, which means king or son of David. Son of David, son of God is the same term. In, in most of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament. Son of man is a divine claim. A divine claim. 
And that's why he said he spoke blasphemy. And one of the Gospels says that as soon as he heard it, the high priest tore his robes, which is exactly what the Mishnah says he's supposed to do if he ever hears blasphemy. So what did they hear him say? They heard him say, I'm God. Now, do his words and his actions give you confidence that he was right? That's the question. He comes and says, I'm the king. I'm son of David. I'm Messiah. I'm son of God. All king titles. And then he goes and says, I am son of man. Is a divine title. What does that tell you about Jesus? Who does he think he is? Is there consistency between what he does? Why does Matthew tell you all the stories of healings and exorcisms and power over nature and why is all that in there because he did it to show you who he was his words back up what he does what he did gives you the power of his words and that's why the gospel is designed the way it is that's why Matthew tells you the story so now I want to back up and show you one last thing before we end this morning. I'm going to do it real quick. Matthew, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis, they all claimed their authority from Moses. Matthew very rarely even uses the word Moses. Very rarely. And he doesn't really quote him as the all-powerful authority. Does that surprise you? If they're in a conflict, Matthew's not going to tell you that Moses is more powerful than Jesus or God, right? So he kind of ignores the name. But how does he start the story? What happens when Herod finds out that there is a son of God being born in Bethlehem? He goes and starts killing babies. What happened when Moses was a little bitty baby? What did the Pharaoh do? Why was he in the basket? Same reason, right? And so you, you, you've got a story of an infant being threatened with death in the life of Jesus and one being threatened with death in the life of Moses, right? And then you have a story about Jesus being taken down into Egypt so that the, the words of Hosea could say, out of Egypt I call my son. And who comes out of Egypt if it's not Moses? with a group of people. And when he comes out of Egypt, how are those people saved? What happens to them? How do they become a nation? Well, guess what? The sea parts, they go through the water, and on the other side, they, they, they arrive on the other bank as the people who God protected and has taken them to the wilderness to receive the law on a mountain, Right? Jesus comes to John the Baptist at the Jordan River and says, I need to be baptized by you. John says, oh, wait a minute. You didn't get the message. You need to repent and, and, and repent of your sins. And, and wait a minute. Jesus, you got sins? Oh, I don't think I need to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. Isn't that what John says? What's going on? Why does Jesus say we must fulfill righteousness? Why? 
It's the right thing to do because the people of God went through the water and they became the people of God through the Red Sea. And when they came up into the wilderness, they went to the... Do you see the picture? Why is baptism so important? You say, well, forgiveness of sins. Well, that's emphasized. But the biggest thing is it makes you a part of the people of God who were saved through the water. You see the symbol that stands behind it? It's a communal symbol. Why does Jesus be baptized? Because he's one of the Israelites and he goes through the sea. He's saved through water, just like they were. As you see that power, what, what else happens? Well, guess where he goes next? Where do the Israelites go? Wilderness. What happened to them in the wilderness? God started finding out what they were made out of. Testing, right? That's, you think about it for a minute. That's exactly what begins to happen. Why? Because he wants to take the Egypt out of them, not just them out of Egypt. That's why. And so guess what? Where does Jesus head right after he's saved through the water? The wilderness. And guess what happens to him? Satan shows up. And he begins to ask him questions. No, he begins to test his heart. And Jesus passes the test. Israelites didn't. They got 40 years. He only had 40 days. But you see the symbol, don't you? And as you think about the wilderness, and there he is, and they're tested, and then when they come out of the wilderness, what begins to happen? Well, Moses starts doing stuff, and, and the people look at him and say, Really? I didn't know you were that powerful. Really? We can't. Fire comes down and consumes people who disagree with you? We run to the Red Sea and look what God does. Look at all those miracles. Look at all those plagues. Jesus comes in, and what happens immediately? He shows compassion. He starts healing people. He starts touching lepers. You get the picture? Why is he doing that? So that you will know that he's more than just a Messiah that's going to be a king, that's going to get an army, and is going to kick the Romans out. Because I know that we really need to love our enemies, but dead Romans are not enemies anymore. Right? That's how you take care of that. And then what does he do? Where does Moses go after he comes through the first part of the wilderness? He ends up at a place called Sinai. What's there? A mountain. Who's on top of the mountain? God. What does God do on the top of the mountain? Speaks. And in his finger, he writes the ten words. Right? Where does Jesus go when he comes out of the wilderness and he goes through and he starts doing amazing things and all the people? And in chapter 5, he goes up on a mountain and he sits down and he begins to teach the Torah the way it should be taught, not the way the Pharisees were teaching it. Because unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. And what's the words as immediately he comes out and as he begins to preach? Repent for the kingdom of 
Heaven is here. Sometimes it's translated at hand. That word means here. I'm, you're looking at it. What were they looking at? Jesus, the king. And Matthew wants you to understand that he is the king. He is the one who shows you real righteousness from God. He's the one that, as he comes through and tells you all these wonderful things and confirms stuff, and you see the, the footprints. Oh, I want to end with this. After he speaks, at the end of Matthew 7, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as no one, as one who had an authority and not as their teachers of the law. Whoa. How would you like to be a Pharisee and hear the end of that speech? They thought they had the answers. Pretty confrontive, isn't it? You'll notice that he doesn't quote any of the sages. The rabbis don't quote anybody except other rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so said, so-and-so said, so-and-so said, but this is the right thing to do. That's how they do it all the time. Jesus doesn't teach like that. He doesn't teach like a scribe. Because he's telling you the internal core reality of God's Torah. And he's showing it to you in his life. I want to close with this illustration. Listen to him, he says. I remember back several times, got a re, I, I got a reminder a few, uh, uh, a little while back with some of the grandkids. You know when they're small, they have a tendency to get splinters in their fingers or their toes because they don't wear their shoes or, you know, they don't know to avoid wood that might be having splinters in it. And you know what a joy it is to take a three-year-old and try to convince them that you ought to get that splinter out, right? I can remember many times fighting that battle. You know, I've got to get this. Oh, no, just leave it in. Just leave it in. It doesn't hurt that bad. And here we go, you know. And But if I don't get it out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn septic, and you're going to get infected. And, and I just got to get that out of there. And it happens to be right in the end of your finger where you have the most nerves, right? And that little needle that I think is so tiny, and it is, it's a really sharpy little needle. I take a really small needle, but it looks like a two-by-four to a three-year-old, and it hurts before you even touch them, right? Been there? Okay, and you go, well, how's that relevant? Guys, you all have splinters, and you don't want them removed. You don't want them touched, but guess what Jesus has come to do? He's going to get your splinters out. And you're not going to like it. Joan reminded us. You're not going to like it when he comes after your splinters. Right? But when he's done, when he's done, who are you? You're the person made and born in the image of God. You're the one he came for. You're the one that he has restored life without splinters to. 
true. 